Greetings, LARP book clubbers and Radio Hour listeners. I'm Boris Gerluk, Editor-in-Chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books, and today I'm joined by Lindsay Wright, Program Manager of the LARP Publishing Workshop. Lindsay and I will be speaking with Andrei Kurkov, one of Ukraine's leading literary figures. He is the author of some 30 books, mostly for adults, but many for children, as well as screenplays and television scripts. Andrei was raised in Kyiv, and until very recently was based in the city. Kyiv is not only the setting of some of his most beloved novels, like Death and the Penguin, but also the position from which he has chronicled his nation's journey towards democracy in works like the Ukraine Diaries, his first-hand account of the 2014 Euromaidan Revolution of Dignity, and the subsequent Russian annexation of Crimea and the war in Donbass. His latest novel, available in English, Grey Bees, focuses on those devastated eastern and southern regions of Ukraine, two or three years into what is now an eight-year war. Russia's brutal escalation of that war has uprooted Andrei and his family, along with millions of Ukrainians, and made Grey Bees seem more painfully relevant, its insights more important. I happen to be the novel's translator into English, so this special edition of the book club is all the more special for me. Welcome, Andrei. Hello. Thank you. The first question I'd like to ask is not especially literary, but I think it's a question that deserves asking, which is, where are you now, and how does it feel to be away from Kiev? Describe your life these days. Well, I'm on the road, actually. Yesterday I was in Mukachevo. Now I'm spending night with my friends in Berigo on the border with Hungary. And tomorrow I'm off to Romania for two days. But I'm still quite far away from Kiev, more than 800 kilometers. And it's quite painful to think that actually it's more than 40 days that we are away from home. And actually people are calling me on the phone, my friends, and asking, is it safe to return to Kiev? Because many people are going back to Kiev. But, but I know it is not safe. And actually almost everybody knows it is not safe. I know that everything is okay with our flat. And in the countryside house, also everything is in order. I'm talking every day to my neighbors. But it is different life now this life during the war as opposed to the before the war. I was just thinking that my grandfather used to tell me that how great it is that you were born after the war. He didn't know that I was born actually before one. Yes, it's very painful indeed. And you've spoken, I think, very movingly about how this war is a continuation or perhaps a return to the 20th century, perhaps even to medieval times. It is, it is, because, I mean, when civilians are targeted and when you have a carpet bombing of the towns and cities and villages, it is not only barbaric, it is Second World War destruction of life in general, not the fight against the enemy army, but the fight against enemy nation or just anything alive because lots of animals also fell victims to this war, including animals in the zoos. One of the first victims were two chimpanzees in Kharkiv Zoo, which died in the bombardment. I want to return to the question of animals, but I'll let Lindsay take it away. Thank you so much. And it was such a pleasure to read Grey Bees. And I wanted to maybe start with this question of animals since you bring it up. And I was so intrigued by beekeeping in Ukrainian culture as I was reading this. And I was wondering... When you began to think about this novel, was it always going to be a novel about beekeepers? Was that a really important part of what you were saying? Or would there be a version of this novel? Could you imagine a version of this novel in which Sergei is a shepherd or a, 
a farmer with chickens or cows? Is there something essential about beekeeping for you? No, I couldn't imagine him being anybody else except beekeeper because not only because of the very old tradition of beekeeping in Ukraine and on Ukrainian territory before that, but also because beekeepers in Ukraine are considered wise men and independent, financially independent and sometimes politically independent. <laughs> the other thing is that actually honey was found by people, by humans, much long before they learned how to bake bread. So in the beginning, there was honey, and it was wild honey. And then probably bees were the first beans that were domesticated. I'm sure they were domesticated before dogs and before cats. Sergei could be only beekeeper, and especially since he was brought up and grew up in the Soviet Union with this strange idea of collective happiness, of communism building, and things like this. So for him, actually, bees are also an example of success in the working community building. And it seems that he looks to the bees in a way as an example of this harmonious society, you know, that they're taking care of each other, they're all working together, but then also at certain points he looks at them and says, don't be like humans. You know, he sees something reflected in this hive that reminds him of the situation he sees around him with bees expelling bees from foreign hives. Well, I mean, as a beekeeper, he knows everything about bee habits and uh, the structure of this society. Mm -hmm. So I think he got angry in the end of the book with his bees because suddenly, actually, he realized that they can also behave like humans. They can also close the door in front of somebody and not help somebody. I mean, the war provoked him to look again at this kind of rules that he loved according to rules according to which actually bees live and work. And I think that along the road, he discovers that there is another form of collective life, which is more human than bee-like, that is actually worth preserving and worth pursuing. And it takes work, it takes effort to see across lines that are drawn for us artificially and to find commonality with others. And I think that's exemplified by his relationship with the Crimean Tatars. Could you say a little bit about the research that went into this book and your work on Crimean Tatar culture and what's happening to the Tatars now, perhaps? Well, I'm still in correspondence with Nariman Jilal, who is in prison in Simferopol, awaiting trial. I know many Crimean Tatars who escaped from Crimea, who were practically deported or not let back. And we have a community of Crimean Tatars in Kiev and in Lviv. And I'm very grateful to many of them because they were my advisors and they gave me books and they told me the stories and told me about traditions and everything. So I wouldn't be able to write the third part of the novel without them. Actually, the first two Crimean Tatars who were helping me, they were Ilmiu Mirov and Chigos. They were Tatars who were freed from Russian prisons by Turkish President Erdogan. And then they were just sent by plane via Istanbul to Kiev. So, I mean, Ilmiu Merov was sharing with me the traditions of burials and death-related things, which are very important in the book, but they are also important now when Crimean Tatars are persecuted and so many of them are missing and you don't know where the bodies are. So, I mean, they are in a very 
difficult situation because, I mean, if they fight, they are expelled or put into prison. If they are silent, they lose dignity and they practically become invisible for Russian-speaking society. I know also that, for example, I mean, there are Crimean Tatars children in Crimean schools, and there were several cases which were documented when the teachers were telling the other pupils that Crimean Tatars were traitors during the Second World War. And here we have in the class grandchildren of traitors and things like this. So you can imagine what they feel and how the parents feel for their children when they tell these stories when they come home. We see that reflected in the book, this idea of you know, rewriting history, who gets to tell the story of history and how important that is, uh, especially in the some of the Russian characters. There was the older lady who run into at the very end of the book who says, you know, this land has been Russian Orthodox since time immemorial. When Putin was here, he told the whole story. This is sacred Russian land. And this idea of the rewriting of the history in order to create this very different narrative. And I wonder if you see that reflected around you now today. Well, I mean, this war that we have now, it's all about rewriting history because 20 years ago, 15 years ago, Putin used to repeat that Russians and Ukrainians are brotherly nations. Then he changed his narrative and started saying that Russians and Ukrainians are the same nation. And before the war, he started saying that Ukrainians don't exist. These are just Russians who decided that they are a bit different. So, I mean, you see that actually. The history was never rewritten so often and so fast as in these days. And he needed this history to be rewritten before the war, so I mean, before the war started. So, I mean, he is now repeating the same thing, that actually Ukraine belongs to Russia, Kiev belongs to Moscow, and he doesn't care that actually it was Kiev's prince Dolgoruki, Yuri Dolgoruki, who built Moscow, who had a concept of Moscow, and who created Moscow Kingdom. And Yuri Dolgoruki is buried in Kiev, in Kiev Pechersk Lavra Monastery. What is incredible also that Kiev is 1,540 years old and Moscow is only 875 years old, but Putin still considers Moscow the heart and the historic heart and the beginning of Russia. If it is the beginning of Russia, it should be separated from Ukraine, it should be separate from Kiev and from Kievan mm. history. Absolutely, and that's a long struggle for Ukrainian people to establish in the eyes of the world, not just the truth of their history, but just to convince the rest of the world not to listen to the big nation right next door. It takes time, it's difficult. I mean, Europe understands more or less already that Putin was lying and is lying. But for example, Latin America doesn't know anything about Ukraine. Russia is investing now in fake news in Latin America, sort of sharing on social networks articles about anti-Semitism in Ukraine and how dangerous it is to be a Jew in Kiev and about Nazi government and Nazi parliament. And of course, they don't say that there is not a single nationalistic political party present in the parliament because Ukrainians en masse don't vote for extreme right or extreme left. Yes, and just to follow up on that one point, it's interesting that Sergei himself undergoes a kind of education about what it means to be Ukrainian. He comes out of a gray zone 
which is neither here nor there. And along the way, although he returns home, he returns home with a new notion of what the country around him is. And do you think that's a process that a lot of Ukrainians have undergone by force through the last 30 years, but especially the last eight years? They are undergoing this by force because they were not asked to do this without force by the government, because politicians were hopeless in Ukraine, and they never cared about country and about the future. Because, I mean, people in Donbass, they didn't travel. Very often they wouldn't leave their district, not even region, but even district. I mean, they, they were sitting at home, and for them the world was delivered through television. So they didn't know anything about people in Kiev, people in Chernigiv, people in Western Ukraine, and they believed all the cliches they were shared with by local politicians who were connected with mafia and with local oligarchs. And I mean, those who traveled, Western Ukraine traveled a lot. And people are much more European, much more flexible, more active, and have more concrete ideas about Europe, about what Ukraine should look like, etc., People from the regions where people didn't travel, they are like uneducated. Now they are getting this education the hard way. And I'm very sorry for everybody. I mean, I'm sorry for myself, but I don't really think about myself because, I mean, we are still in a, in a good position comparing to people who left Chernigiv, Sumy, Mariupol, and now they have nowhere to go back. They have houses and blocks of flats, apartments destroyed, just ruins and ashes. And tens of thousands of relatives dead in the streets. Yeah, yeah. This is a result of complex situation, I would say, but the main guilty party is Russia and Putin, of course. And not only Putin, but actually because Russians created Putin. And I am afraid that actually if Putin is dead, Russians will create Putin number two and Putin number three. It will be just like not a royal family, but a political dynasty, not a family dynasty. Because they think it's nice to have a Tsar, and it's nice that the world is afraid of you, and it means that you are important. But, I mean, any murderer is important until he is put into prison. Absolutely. One of the things that I think is so interesting about this book and the way that Sergeyev has this journey where he starts off in his village, not having traveled, not having had any desire to travel, in fact, refusing to go with his ex-wife and his daughter to leave the village. And he is sort of forced by circumstances out onto the road, experiencing these different interactions with people. And we see him having to leave his political passivity in a way that he has to make choices. He has no choice. He accidentally, on purpose, you know, reveals the location of a Russian sniper who is then blown up. You know, he has to make choices when he gets to Crimea about whether to intervene in the detention of his friend and his friend's child. And I wonder if you are seeing that now. Do you think that is it possible to remain in your little world, in your beekeeping world, blind to the politics around you now in Ukraine? Or is that time past? No, I don't think you can live in your bubble in the time of the war. And actually, in the novel, it is the taste of the honey that provokes him to think about leaving for the summer with the bees somewhere where the taste will be different because there will be no gunpowder on the flowers. So without this, maybe he would have stayed. But anyway, I think the war touches not only human lives. It destroys everything. It 
has impact on everything, on quality of air, quality of earth. I mean, Ukraine is now covered with destroyed Russian tanks and cars and bulletproof vehicles, which means that the pH, the acidity of the soil will go up in two or three years because of the rain and rust. And it will influence the taste of the bread in the future. Not only bread, but everything which will be grown on this soil. You're listening to a special edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Andrei Kurkov, author of the novel Grey Bees. Now, back to our conversation with Andrei Kurkov. Ukraine has often been characterized as, as the bloodlands, as, as a, a place of one disaster after another. And what I think is now um, on the screens of all of those watching from abroad is not just uh, the, the you know, scenes of destruction, but also of enormous resilience, which is, I think, a legacy of Ukraine. The fact that Ukraine has continued to get back up on its feet and keep walking. In a way, Sergei, although he himself is not particularly aware of his Ukrainianness, uh, he, he doesn't think in those terms, is a kind of emblem of this resilience, which is um, uh, taking up responsibilities day by day, uh, following following one's uh, needs and following the needs of one's neighbors and sticking together as much as you can and just going on. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about what you detect to be signs of hope, if there are any signs of hope among the Ukrainians to whom you're speaking. Um, are they showing resilience? Um, are the people around you um, giving you reason to to think that, you know, what comes next will not just be bitter bread, but perhaps something sweet as well? Every society consists of different people. And uh, you can only sort of guess... Uh, how big is the percentage of active people or people who are prepared to sacrifice their life for the freedom of others? And for Ukrainians, freedom is more important than stability or quality of life. Unlike Russians, who actually prefer stability and quality of life to freedom, because Russians accepted political life without opposition on the demonstrations, on the protests, harsh punishment for sharing posts which can be considered not patriotic, etc. In Ukraine it would be impossible because in Ukraine freedom comes first, everything else comes second. So, I mean, this also this comes from the history uh, which is uh, like uh, rejected by Putin, but the history of Ukraine is indeed opposite to history of Russia. Because Ukrainians never had royal family. Ukrainians were independent in 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. They had independent territory and they were fighting for it. So, I mean, they didn't have fixed borders, but all the borders were front lines with Poles, with Russians, with Turks, with Crimean Tatars. Sometimes together with Crimean Tatars, Ukrainians were fighting against Poles. But, the, I mean, it was not maybe a proper country because they didn't have currency, but they had diplomatic service. And you can find, actually, correspondence between Sultan, Turkish Sultan, and uh, Ukrainian Gateman in Istanbul archives. Uh, there, there was a legal system. There were military courts. I assume some of them were as corrupt as today's Ukrainian courts, but they existed. 
And actually, what is more important, there were elections of hetman, of the head of the army, and elections of higher officers. And although Ukrainians uh, voted for one hetman, but two or three days later they would be unhappy with him and they would try to start intrigues to remove him and to re-elect another one. So, I mean, this is completely different concept of life and different uh, idea of communal life and society life. And that's why, actually, I think when the matrix of Soviet behavior disappeared together with the Soviet Union, the ancient matrix of this individualism, of this organized anarchy, uh, came up to the surface and replaced the Soviet matrix of behavior. And that's why, actually, the Ukrainians became warriors. That's why we have 400,000 war veterans, Donbass war veterans, who became a community who started writing books themselves, started publishing houses, started uh, pizza chain restaurants, chain restaurants, etc. And they now all left for the front. So I, I hope they, most of them will survive and they will, will come back and they will influence the development of the society because local mafia is afraid of them. Because, yes. I mean, they, they, they represent power, different power, not power of money or power of good connections but power of justice, because for them justice is very important. And for them, actually, to be uh, just or to be honest means more important than to be rich or to be successful in business. Yes. And I think uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the importance of language there, because one of the gestures that Sergej makes that is a little uh, that is analogous this, to this organized chaos that you talk about, this organized anarchy, is the changing of the street names in his hometown. He makes that decision. He does it by himself. Uh, and uh, it is a kind of shift in, in his perspective on the world. Um, uh, so maybe we can talk a little bit about the language that he uses and the importance of language in this uh, conflict right now. What's happening uh, to the names of places, the names of cities, the names of streets, what's happening to monuments, and uh, you know what the, what the role of language is in, in today's war. Well, in the village where Pashka and Sergeyevich live, uh, there are only uh, two streets and one small, I don't know how to say it, half street. Lane, yeah. A lane, yeah. And these two main streets uh, have very typical names for the Soviet times. Shevchenko, national poet, Taras Shevchenko, and Vladimir Lenin, universally known. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, uh, several days ago, uh, Russian soldiers were shooting at Shevchenko Monument in Borodyanka, and there is a famous photo now on social networks of a monument with a bullet uh, hole in the head. And, uh, and this was uh, uh, also, I mean, th 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 this was a Russian way of uh, not changing <laughs> the streets, but uh, their answer to uh, renaming the streets in Ukraine because they still want to have Lenin streets and Lenin monuments and not monuments to national poets. But uh, in fact, in the book, Sergei has sometimes confused ideas about what is happening, because he is speaking uh, using the language of 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And when he speaks to a young Ukrainian soldier, Petro, he listens to the language of 2014, 2017. And that's why, actually, there is some kind of subconscious envy and desire to 
try to speak this language of the young people of the new era. And that's why probably this is one of the reasons why he decides to change the names, uh, to change the name of the street he lives in, because he is the only one on this street. So, I mean, he doesn't need to ask neighbors. He knows how it is done from the words of Petro. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and in a way, he also thinks that actually Pashka, who is much more sort of uh, post-Soviet than Sergei, probably he deserves more to live on Lenin Street because he belongs to the past. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Sergei doesn't want to belong to the past, especially after he talked and he made friends with, with the Ukrainian soldier. One of my favorite scenes in the book. Um, it's very touching precisely because Sid Gage so often is only half aware of his motivations, if that. But he acts uh, to realize those impulses. Uh, and and yeah. this, this action is very touching. Yeah. You mentioned this, um, this conflict between the languages of the generations. Um, and that um, makes me wonder, I'm curious, Boris, if you um, saw that as you were doing this, um, this translation, um, what were some of the challenges in trying to convey that, um, that difference in, um, in English? Yes, I mean, uh, it, it's always a pleasure to translate Andrei's work because um, like some of the authors he uh, respects most, um, like um, um, the, the the great Russian language author Platonov, uh, Andrei, but in a more gentle way, Andrei's prose affects us the way that Petro's uh, language affects Sergei. It takes over our subconscious, and then only later do we realize that our consciousness has changed. And so, I wanted to preserve that effect, that's that that um, commanding syntactic effect uh, in this novel, just as I had in in the previous novel that I translated. But the, the the small challenges were the challenges of of linguistic difference. Uh, you know, I'm translating this novel into English, which uh, but the novel itself concerns the the gap between Ukrainian and Russian uh, in in some ways. So those moments where the two languages intersect were were difficult for me. Uh, but what I realized is uh, Andrei had handled very successfully a difference between the Russian speakers who are from Russia and Russian speakers who are from Ukraine and difference between Russian speakers who are trapped in the 1960s and Russian speakers who represent the new powers that be in Russia by changing their register. So there, there is a great deal of cynicism in the language and even in the structure of the sentences of those who represent the new Russian mentality which is really the old Russian mentality, but you know the, the ones who, who come to Ukraine from Russia as occupiers. And the language of Sid Gage, who is kind of bumbling about uh, in the only language he knows. So um, the, the real uh, work for me was getting into the uh, mental space of these characters. The language came later. First, I had to uh, feel my way into Sid Gage's consciousness, feel my way into the consciousnesses of, of those around him, like Pashka. And then once I had that uh, uh, in my system, once I've absorbed those those uh, um, uh, uh, ways of thinking, then I could find the proper English language for them. Well, Andrea, I'm, I'm really curious. Um, so you write primarily in, in Russian. Do you see a difference between um, the Russian that is spoken and written in Ukraine from the Russian that is spoken and written in um, in Russia? Of course, I mean, they, these are two different languages. I mean, they are using the same words, but sometimes they use different meanings. And and Russian uh, in Ukraine was influenced by uh, Ukrainian a lot, 
and even by Polish and by Ukrainian culture. So, I mean, we have different lexic, we have different vocabulary, and there are words which are not welcome uh, in Ukrainian and Russian, but they exist and they happily in Russian-Russian. And uh, actually, I remember that when the war started, uh, the first word which was a marker that somebody who said this is a Russian-Russian was uh, porebrik, which is uh, 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 the corner, uh, what I don't know, the step between uh, pavement and the uh, driveway. And it, and it sounds very aggressive uh, for Ukrainian-Russian speakers, but it is very normal for Russian-Russian speakers. Because it's actually the root of this word is rebro, which is uh, rib. Exactly. Yes, and, and of course, you know, that there are so many kinds of Russian spoken in Ukraine. There's a general Ukrainian-Russian uh, that is mutually intelligible, but there are also regional Russians. There's the Russian of Donbass, the Russian of Odessa in the oh, south, yeah. south, the Russian of Crimea. And, um, uh, you know, one of the um, one of the victims of, of Putin's aggression in the name of the defense of the Russian language is this variety. He's killing uh, the real Russian speakers of Ukraine. And uh, that and Russian, the Russian that's spoken there as well. I was very um, interested in this word, um, wonderful word in Ukrainian. I was wondering if you could talk about um, frenemy and what the word is um, in Ukrainian. And um, is this a difficult word to translate into English? Because it's so important to the novel. We see Sergei and um, Pashka, who have known each other since they were small boys, have this love-hate relationship where they have hated each other since they were boys and yet deeply care about each other and each other's survival. And you translate that as, as frenemy. So could you tell us what that word is? The word is vrazhenyatko. No, I mean, in Russian, it is not one word, actually. It's the, like, enemies from childhood. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, Boris was very creative and inventive. And I'm very happy that he managed to put these two Russian words uh, into one English word. And I, I hope that this word will live long enough and will pop up in different texts, maybe written by American writers now. Yes, it's actually a word that, that exists in English. And uh, I just thought it was perfect for to render this relationship. Um, and uh, what I think what I love, what I love about it is that in, in the Russian text, you know, Sergei reaches for something that isn't Russian in order to characterize this relationship as if this relationship were not not something that could exist outside of Ukraine or not something that could exist outside of, of this uh, bond between Pashka and him. And so what I did was I, I found a, a nice English word, which is very popular, I think very popular now, uh, but actually dates back to the 1930s, um, okay. uh, to the Midford sisters. Um, and as soon as I found that word, as soon as it occurred to me when I was translating, I realized what Sid Gage's language was going to be like. So often you start a translation and you're looking for the right tone. You're looking for a way into the text. And then something happens and, and you just click with the subject. And here I clicked uh, right around that word. So I'm very glad that people picked up on, on, on the choice and um, that they too felt that it, it made sense in the language of, of uh, my friend Sergei H. 
Well, one of the things that was so um, interesting in, in this book, and I was thinking about it as we were trying to arrange this, this interview with the differences in the time zone, um, was the perception of, of time that Sergeyev has in opposed to Pashka. So Pashka doesn't seem to care about the hours of the day, but he's always crossing off the days on the calendar and keeping track of when the patriotic holidays are. Um, whereas Sergeyev has to have his clock that is always correct. Um, why we're not sure because he has no appointments, but he needs to know the time. Um, and I thought that was um, that was such an interesting difference that shows their their characters. And I was also curious: Do you find that your sense of time has shifted or changed at all since the beginning of the invasion? Of course, uh, I, I mean uh, I was surprised two weeks uh, into the war. Uh, that uh, on the working days I would receive like 20, 30 requests from journalists asking for interviews. And on, on the weekend, none. <laughs> and, and I was just uh, thinking that, well, I, of course, I mean, they have uh, weekend, they have days off, actually, but, but I, I don't want to have, I mean, I don't have days off, not only because I'm a writer and writers... Uh, decide when they can write or when they cannot write. So, I mean, they can have Monday off sometimes, but I don't like actually days off. And then I started playing with journalists. I mean, they were asking me, when can they talk to me? And I was saying, uh, let's talk Saturday or Sunday. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and uh, I mean, it was a strange pleasure, of course, sort of provoking them uh, to, to find excuses. But, but generally, I mean, this is the thing which happens in the war that you uh, you don't uh, differentiate the days dates of the week i mean I, sometimes i i'm not sure if it is monday or wednesday or friday so um, i'm checking in the computer or asking my wife but it's, it's not important now important is sort of to wait until the better news to come uh, maybe to wait until the war is over or uh, and then uh, also it won't be important which day of the week it will happen. Absolutely, absolutely. Can you tell us whether your experience um, is similar to the experience of other Ukrainian authors that you're in touch with and what they're doing now? I, you, you mentioned that many of them who were veterans of the war in Donbass have gone back and picked up arms uh, and are fighting if they can. Um, so what, what, is the, what does the future hold for Ukrainian literary culture? How do you think it will emerge from this? Uh, it's, it's difficult to predict, but I think the literature will become even more militant, although it was already militant from 2014. Uh, the book market probably will be dead for some time, because although publishers are trying to edit new manuscripts, but of course there are no prospects of the publications, not only because of the universal lack of paper, I mean, the publishing houses are not working. And the writers, I think, they are not writing fiction anymore. They are writing texts, reports, essays, columns, etc. And actually, there are some writers who went abroad as refugees. And I, I, I have a feeling that they are lost. They cannot write neither fiction nor non-fiction. They just don't know how to live uh, uh now, because, I mean, they have to readapt, they have to understand the country. They are not sure they will remain in Poland if they are in Poland. Uh, somebody tells them that it's better to go to Germany 
if they go to Germany without knowledge of German, they will be even more lost. They may be uh, helped more financially, but uh, but then they will be even more isolated. So, I mean, this is the uh, tragedy, actually, a personal tragedy for everybody who brings his language or her language uh, with them, and this language is not understood by others in this country. And so she or he needs need to learn language to communicate, but they will never be able to learn language uh, to write in the new language. What happens, actually, they, are, they left their uh, life uh, experience uh, on which the poetry, novels, and short stories were based. They left it behind in the abandoned houses, in the abandoned towns and cities. Uh, and they uh, entered completely new territory where they are helpless, where they are like children, and uh, they're not capable, actually, even, I think, to describe their experience as a refugee because it's so painful and because they don't want sort of to accept it in the first several months. It's, it's a terrible time of transition with no clear end in sight, but my hope is that uh, with time, um, all the millions of Ukrainians who have been deprived of their homes are able to return and to make sense of what they're going through. I hope so too. Thank you, Andrei, for making time to speak with us. And uh, um, I can break a, a little bit of news, I hope. Um, I'll be, we'll be working again together on, on the new translation. And I hope there will be many, many books ahead and that you return to your writing desk too. I hope to. I hope to. And hope to see you sooner yes. or later. It was great to have you in Los Angeles not so long it ago. Was, it was great time. It was great time before the war. Yes. Travel okay. safely. Thank you. Thank you. And have a nice day. Thank you, Andre. And I will try to have a nice evening. Although the, the sun is actually setting down now. No. I hope that you can have some borscht. Yes, that was that was also a great pleasure to read about. Um, don't read this book at two in the morning because you will start to fantasize about this wonderful <laughs> slow cooked borscht. <laughs> yeah, that's yes. true. That's true. We've been speaking to Andrei Kurkov, author of Grey Bees. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the LARP Radio Hour. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen.